A quick service announcement. Due to technical issues, this week's panel show is delayed a little, but the good news is we can now bring you this daily a bit earlier than we planned. We hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. Today, are the odds ever really in your favour? Among the numerous mini crises spawned by the pandemic is an explosion in problem gambling. In the first lockdown in early 2020, even though live sport was off, online virtual sports betting increased by 88% and online poker by 53%, according to the Gambling Commission. A House of Lords report last year found that a third of a million people in the UK are problem or disordered gamblers and that 60% of the industry's profits came from 5% of its customers. Meanwhile, the Gordon Moody Association, which is a charity that offers residential treatment to gambling addicts, says the number of calls from gamblers who said they felt suicidal had recently quadrupled. And it's all taking place against a backdrop of insistent advertising and sponsorship, all of which brands gambling as young, smart, tech savvy and sexy. Very much not the province of grey faced men wheezing away a Saturday in William Hill. It's also taken place against a backdrop of a hands off approach from successive governments. This is all working for the £11 billion gambling industry. You'll have seen that the boss of Bet365, Denise Coates, paid herself £468 million last year. But it's not working for the NHS, which has to pick up the pieces. Claire Murdoch, the National Mental Health Director for NHS England, says that the industry should be taxed to pay for treatment of the new wave of gambling addicts. So what is to be done? With me, I've got Matt Zarb, cousin, director of Clean Up Gambling and co-founder of the Coalition Against Gambling Ads. Matt's a former spokesman for Jeremy Corbyn, but we're not going to fight about that. We're going to talk about <laughs> gambling today. Hello, Matt. Thank you so much for making time to join us. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Really, my pleasure. Glad to have you here. So, so tell, just first off, give us a picture of, of like how deep the gambling crisis brought on by the, the pandemic is. I mean, I just had a load of statistics there, but what what, what are you seeing? Well, in, in the first lockdown, exactly as you've identified there, we had uh, obviously cancellation of sports fixtures and people that were regular gamblers, perhaps gambling once a week on, on football, switched to the uh, more, more addictive products. Uh, the, so online slots, which generates 2.2 billion out of 5 billion profits online. It's the biggest revenue generator. That increased by about 30% in the first lockdown. Uh, and they're more addictive products because... You can bet far more frequently. So obviously rapid event frequency on things like slots and online casino games and virtual sports. And also there's no limits to the stakes. So whereas the the gambling legislation that we have from 2005 covers off things like machines and Mm. obviously fixed odds betting terminals were an anomaly because they allowed £100 a spin. There is a mechanism to control things like the maximum stake that you can bet. But online because the legislation is frankly out, outdated, there just isn't those provisions. So you can bet unlimited amounts online. So you, people bet thousands of pounds a spin sometimes on online slots. So the, these are highly addictive products with around a 40 to 45% addiction or at risk of addiction rate for people that use them. So it's, I mean, it's one thing to focus on the kind of population level prevalence of gambling addiction. And obviously that is mm. widely disputed. It, you know, some, some estimates put it at about a third of a million. Some put it more than a million, much, mm-hmm. far, much higher than that. But it's the level of harm associated with these particular products that I think should inform policy or our response to, to, to policy. You yourself, you've been very open about you know being a recovering gambling addict yourself. You became addicted to fixed odds, odds betting terminals around about the age of sixteen. I mean, at what point did you realise that you yourself had a problem and it was it was it was damaging your life? I think probably when I was 
missing school to go to the bookies. I got a job when I was in sixth form uh, uh, as a customer service advisor for PowerGen, which then became Eon. I got paid, so I was doing like 16 hours a week, and yeah. I got paid like 500 pounds the first month I worked and lost it all in like an hour in the bookies. So that's when I really realized I, was, I had a big problem with this. And it's difficult to explain how addictive it is, like I think until you've been in that position yourself. But, you know, I didn't have any underlying mental health conditions. I didn't have, I mean, I think I've, I think I've got, since being addicted, I think I've had yeah. kind of res- residual mental health problems. But, I, I, you know, I, I didn't have any anything like that. It was just a really addictive product that kind of sucked me in. And I, w- I wanted to ask you about that because, I mean, you know, what I'm just mentioning about the the, the the spread of online gambling as we've all been in isolation. We, we've, you know, we've heard, we hear so much about mental health issues with young people. We hear about the epidemic of male suicide, and yet we are fostering an activity which could be designed to increase anxiety and money worries, particularly amongst young men. And we are branding it for young men. Why is this not being recognised and talked about? Yeah, I, this is the thing. This is what frustrates me so much. It, the link doesn't seem to have been made in the public consciousness yet. Mm. It, we have this this issue of the, the male suicide rate and mental health problems. And we know that gambling addiction has the highest suicide rate of all the addictions. And there's a charity called Gambling With Lives, which is doing some fantastic work in in highlighting some of the, uh, the cases of young men who have who have sadly taken their own lives as a result of gambling addiction. And this is a charity that was formed by bereaved families. Mm. And what they're trying to do is demonstrate the link between, you know, the the risk of suicide and and gambling itself. And it's not just the losses. It's not just the, the money that's been lost and the financial harm. It's the actual harm of the addiction. It's the feeling of a loss of control. And I think that the way that gambling is marketed, it does, the subtext is very often offering people a looking like it's the perception of offering people a platform where they can assert some control over something and actually yeah. what 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 ends up happening is uh, the, pe- the people that get drawn to that as a result of the nature of gambling and particularly commercial gambling uh, end up feeling a more exacerbated loss of control and that feeling of not being in control is obviously you know it's emasculating it's uh, you know, feeling like you're subordinating yourself to something, you're losing money. There's so many harms that arise from, you know, falling into that that trap of addiction. Yeah, I mean, the imagery of, I'm not a gambler myself, but I watch a lot of football on television. And the kind of, the imagery of young men as presented in gambling ads, it's like, you're rugged, you're sexy, you're a bit naughty. And, but more importantly, gambling is presented as a normal activity that everybody does all the time. In play on your phone is just something that you do with the implication that if you don't, then you're kind of not not a real man. I mean, alcohol advertisers are not allowed to present booze as a gateway to sex appeal, but apparently it's fine in gambling. Why is this? Is anything being done about this? Yeah, this is a, a, a big problem in the way that gambling has been marketed uh, particularly in the last 10 years, but I'm, I mean, a lot more scrutiny now on the nature of gambling marketing. So they do have to be try to be a bit more careful about how they present it. But I think mm-hmm. the, the the real issue that, that has been created at the moment is you've got a generation of young people growing up watching football, believing that you have to 
put a bet on to enjoy the sport. And in fact, that betting is actually part of supporting a team. And there yeah. was some actually very good research that was done in Australia on like children as young as six would be were able to describe in great detail various betting brands, how to put a bet on, what the odds meant, all of these things. So because they had grown up, their experience of sport was so inextricably linked to gambling and to betting that, that they couldn't envisage actually enjoying the sport itself without kind of putting a bet on. And, and I think this is really where the, I mean, the, the sports governing bodies and sports governance has been brought into sharp focus this week, obviously for other reasons, but I think yeah. <laughs> yes. it's, it, it's, it, it's incredibly short termist of, for example, you know, the, um, the Premier League to foster a climate where the next generation of fans can't enjoy football without having a bet on the sport. Yeah. I think that that's incredibly short-termist and that's actually very dangerous for the long-term kind of interest of the game. You want people to grow up enjoying the game for the, for the sport itself and the spectacle of it. And I think that there's a real risk now that particularly young people, um, as soon as they turn 18, they're downloading, downloading all the gambling apps and sport football is just seen as a betting opportunity. It's not seen as a something that they're passionate about in and of itself. Yeah, I mean, I'm astounded to see these ads where you know, you see people building their, their whatever it is, you know, their, their betting plan. And, and it's around like how many corners will there be and how many yellow cards and all yeah. these kind of things, things that are almost random. You might as well be betting on which raindrop reaches the bottom of the window first or which one of your cats is going to come home first. It's like it's little to do with skill and judgment and almost everything to do with chance. Precisely. So this, so this is the thing. It, it, it's, it's almost cri- turning the match into a series of random events which you know you, you couldn't possibly make an informed decision on you you it's it's a guessing game and and that's the thing it's it's a it's the in the past you you if you were going to put a bet on racing or sports or whatever you would go to the bookmakers you would put the bet on you would watch the match that event would conclude mm-hmm. you would win or you would lose and you would be making an informed decision before but now because of the frequency and the availability of gambling and you know, it's accessible on everyone's on everyone's phones there's various opportunities to bet throughout the match. There's bet in play. There's the possibility of chasing losses as a result of that. You're just creating this constant opportunity to gamble that's pretty relentless. Mm. And uh, and as a result of that, it does take away, I think, the attention of the, the spectator. The spectator's yeah. attention is drawn away from enjoying football and onto the bets that they're placing. There's recent government moves to remove in-play ads from half-time so mm. that, you know, these ads are uh, they're at either end of the game and they're not at half-time, just it's as if that's going to make a, a major difference. I mean, what, what, would you, what changes would you like to see in the marketing and the sponsorship and the advertising of gambling? I mean, is this something that you're working on in your, in your various capacities? Yeah, it is. So one of the changes was they stopped them having advertising things like bet now, so uh, instructions to bet. One of the things that they introduced the the industry voluntarily was that they said they wouldn't advertise between five minutes before the match and five minutes after, including half time. Um, but obviously, if you watch football, uh, for example, if you watch Super Sunday on Sky Sports, you're watching games that, well, even now, particularly now, maybe the kickoff first kickoff is at half past one. And then there's another game at four and then there's another yeah. evening match as well. So in between all of those games and in between that window 
it's relentless gambling ads. So if you're a young person watching those three matches consecutively, you will be exposed to lots and lots of gambling ads. It doesn't it doesn't take away it. I mean, Bet365 notoriously, they'll always advertise about six minutes before every game. So they'll get right in there, right at the end. One of the things that we are campaigning for is uh, an end to all gambling, advertising, promotion, and sponsorship. Obviously, it's an it's an ambitious yeah. uh, objective, but we we believe that the the impact on children and the impact on public health warrants it, and we would be following in the footsteps of of Italy that have banned gambling advertising completely. We would be potentially following in the footsteps of Spain, who have banned gambling advertising from from next season in La Liga. The, the, the Spanish clubs aren't allowed to have gambling sponsors yeah. and you're not allowed to advertise gambling unless it's between the hours of 1am and 5am, even on YouTube. So Australia made similar steps in that direction. I think there's now some momentum building internationally. There's some recognition that this is actually you know impacting on, on people negatively and uh, and really, there's overwhelming public support. Some of the polling that we've done for a complete end to all gambling advertising, you're talking about more than half of people supportive and around 10% of people opposing. So yeah. uh, it, it's overwhelmingly in sort of our direction. In 2019, the campaign for fairer gambling, as you mentioned earlier, managed to get the maximum bet on fixed odds terminals change from £100 to £2, which is a major step for one of the most, as you described, one of the most addictive things. And it, it, the then Sports Minister Tracy Crouch famously quits because the government wouldn't, wouldn't do it fast yeah. enough. What is the next FOBT win for you guys? What's the next available or reachable target on rolling back this endless tide of publicity and exhortation to gamble, do you think? Well, I, th- I think... Uh, the the, the Fogarty stake was a, a watershed moment in in that it was the first piece of gambling legislation that wasn't liberalising, uh, mm. particularly you know, since two thousand and five. It was moving in the other direction, and it was significant in that it did depart from the government's approach to this issue, which has been one of I think more attuned to what what would be described as the responsible gambling paradigm. So the idea that you can liberalise gambling, and as long as you mm. tell people or teach people to gamble responsibly, and you make tools available that enable that, then it doesn't matter how much you liberalise gambling, because it will always be a. a this is the, the theory is there'll always be a small proportion of people that get addicted anyway. So we'll just sort of deal with those people as as and when they arise, and we'll do what we can, sort of. But the FOB T stake was a recognition that actually the product itself, the staking capacity the accessibility of it, all of these things actually impact the level of harm, gambling-related harm associated with it. And obviously this particular product was, if you split all the products online as well, the most kind of lucrative, it generated more revenue than any other gambling product um, in isolation. So it was very, very significant in that this was the first time a product was regulated to reduce harm rather than introducing more regulations to kind of encourage people to gamble responsibly if that makes sense so what we're hoping now is that principle will be applied online so things like online slots will have stake limits we want to see affordability checks online uh, that can be carried out when someone gambles more than a specific amount the social market foundation has suggested 100 pounds a month 
Mm-hmm. We also want to see, um, yeah, as I said, an end to advertising. And I think crucially, a statutory levy that can pay for independent research and uh, and treatment. Yeah, those are the main things I would say. And and I think the the fiasco with football index has really brought into sharp focus the need for a dedicated gambling ombudsman as well. So uh, there's nothing at the moment. There's no real mechanisms for consumer redress uh, yeah. if if you get cheated by an operator or, or whatever. So I think that that needs to come into and and there's a there's a gambling review that's ongoing at the moment. The government has just ended its call for evidence and and the the terms of reference of this review are really really broad so we're hoping to to get quite a lot done do you think the industry really cares about the problems that it creates because you know we all see the you know when the fun stops stop ads and the little tiny disclaimer at the bottom of the ads the guardian had an astonishing story this week about the insultingly tiny amounts that the gambling industry gives to gambling charities charities they're supposed to give at least 0.1 percent of their annual revenue some of these companies particularly the white label gaming companies which are where the back end is supplied by somebody else but they're the brand they, they were giving like 250 quid out of millions of profits. Do you think the industry really sees this as an issue to be dealt with or just a problem to be contained and a voice to be shut up? The industry is pretty limited in what it can do unilaterally. So I would say that if you're a gambling operator, and you mentioned the statistic uh, at the beginning of the intro, about 60% of the profits coming from 5% of the customers. If you're a gambling operator and you want to reduce harm, you will be de facto reducing profits quite significantly. And all you would be doing as one single operator is displacing that harm to other operators who aren't doing the things that you're doing to reduce harm. So therefore, the only thing that can really, I think, make any impact is regulation and changes to the law. And yes, uh, I think the when it comes to funding research education and treatment it should absolutely be a statutory levy it shouldn't be up to the operators how much they pay or who they pay it to i think it's just got to be uh, a levy based on the the need to, to treat addiction and what research needs to be commissioned and that decision should be taken out of the hands of the industry and yeah i mean it's insulting the white labels they should never even be allowed anyway um lots of these white label operators only exist to service licensees. So basically, to, in order to advertise in Britain, you need a, a, a gambling commission license. And a lot of operators that are um, Asian facing, mm-hmm. uh, they don't want to go through the whole rigmarole of getting a, a, a full gambling commission license. So they'll sign up to a white label, which is already a licensee. And this will enable them to do things like, for example, advertise on football shirts. And right. when they advertise on football shirts, because of the global appeal of the Premier League, it will enable them to bypass any advertising restrictions in particular jurisdictions, such as China, where China and China gambling is online gambling is illegal. And but they, they show the Premier League. And if they show the Premier League, they're showing the gambling sponsor. I mean, even like this, say for example, Man Bet X, which sponsors Wolves. Even they've even, they even go as far as to you know helpfully put that logo in with Chinese writing on the shirt. Right. So the white labels really they they exist as a function just to facilitate that. They shouldn't be allowed at all. 
Yeah, this is this is when, uh, as a football fan who doesn't gamble, you look at look at the sponsors and go, "Who in the hell is that? I've yeah. never heard of this company." And they apparently they're apparently loaded because they're plastered all all over everything. I wanted to ask you. I mean, you, you've been you've been in the combative end of politics, you know, in, in in the fighting in the trenches. Did you find that time kind of related to your kind of your uh, your your possibly addictive personality? Did the fight get as addictive as putting your Eon wages or your Power Gen wages on, <laughs> on the horses? Was it the, was it a similar kind of buzz? It's funny you should say that actually, because I when I when I was in treatment for gambling addiction, I, they said you need to find something else. You need to find you know another another. Yeah. Passion, a healthy, healthy route. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that. I think the two things are linked. I mean, I don't think I would have got involved with politics at all had I not. Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah. who knows? But like, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it was definitely it's a feature of my recovery, and I think I, I, I threw myself into it probably with the same vigor that I threw myself into gambling. But thank <laughs> you, there, there, there's, there could, there's probably some debate over which one has been uh, more successful, but. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, in any case, uh, yeah, interesting parallel. I mean, just to wrap up then, it's a massive issue. As we were saying earlier, it's really not being talked about, particularly as it relates to young people. I mean, we didn't even talk about the representation of young women in gambling adverts where they're all kind of, you know, wild ladettes who always go to the match. They're, they're almost like the imaginary girlfriend of the young lad who, you know, they want you to be the customer kind of thing. What's going to be the best way to get this kind of into the national conversation? Because it's, it's behaviour and mores that change these things as much as regulation, isn't it? Before, do, do teams need yeah. to just like bite the bullet and wean themselves off that sponsorship somehow? I think so. Look, I mean, football clubs are very unusual entities in that what they tend to do is spend all the money they earn and sometimes more. Um, if they earn less money, then they'll spend less money. Uh, mm. So it's, I think it, it works out, the gambling sponsorship works out at about 7.5% of the total wage and transfer spend of the top two divisions. It's not like a huge amount. Obviously, it would make yeah. some difference, but that 7.5% will in some part be replaced by other alternative sponsors anyway. So yes, I think it will have to be a process of weaning them off. And I'm hoping as well, now we've got this fan-led review of football underway because of the, the helpful interventions from, from the six billionaires behind the Super League, um, <laughs> that the, the, the two things might be joined up. You know, you, you, if you're looking at how football is funded and the pyramid structure and you know, maybe, maybe the two things can, can sort of work in, work in tandem uh, where you, you can work out how to replace that revenue. There's something that they do in France, which I thought was interesting. If you want to offer bets on a particular sport, you have to pay a license fee to the governing body. And that mm -hmm. money can then be distributed across the the leagues, which I which I think is much a much better way of kind of resetting that relationship with gambling rather than taking money off the industry so they can promote themselves. Where can people find out more about what you're doing? They can find out at cleanupgambling.com. Mm -hmm. uh, and I am quite vocal on Twitter about this stuff at at Matzarb, M-A-T-T-Z-A-R-B. Okie doke. Well, Matt Zab cousin, thank you for joining us on the bunker. It's been really interesting. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Cheers, listeners. Thank you for listening. If you want the white knuckle thrill of doing something with your money instead of putting a fiver on Lucky Lady at Newmarket, why not support the bunker on Patreon instead? You will definitely get the podcast early, and you'll definitely get the mugs and t-shirts. So you know, no nervousness. You will definitely get your payouts at the end. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast for much better odds. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison.
The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>